Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Maybe you want to get a piece of that. Pretty good. I want to talk about sexy teens. I was getting erections. It's a very creepy feeling. I can guarantee that underwear theft will come up again. None of this is relevant. Pokemon, Pokeballs. 750 milliliter bottle of rum. Welcome to the Velocity Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle Peter. He will say words at you. When I was young, sitcoms were sort of a different animal than they are today. There was a show that I and pretty much everyone else in the world or everyone else in the Western world watched called Different Strokes because it takes different strokes to move the world. Yes, it does. It takes different strokes to move the world. It takes different strokes to move the world. Yes, it does. It takes different strokes to move the world. And this was about two inner city kids, which is to say black were adopted by a rich man, which is to say white. And so they lived outside of their, the culture they grew up in. Now, these were kids, so they weren't that old to start with. Back when these shows were being made, they did a lot of very special episodes. And very special episodes tended to deal with social issues of the day. So they all did drugs. They all did alcohol. They all did controversial music or something like that. They started to, you know, you run out really quick of the good ones. Uh, once all the kids have experimented with smoking and then they decide smoking's bad, and they experiment with drinking and they find out drinking's bad. And maybe if they were really going to push the envelope, they experiment with drugs and the drugs are bad. Well, then you're starting to really struggle to find very special episodes. Then I guess it would be sex and pregnancy and things like that. There was one episode of Different Strokes that I remember to this day because the context of the episode was that one of Gary Coleman's friends, Arnold, one of his friends had made friends with an adult who owns a bicycle shop. Now, the adult was a pedophile. And what was happening is he was giving the kids ice cream. And then he would mix the ice cream up with a little bit of brandy. And then he would start getting the kids drunk slowly. And then once the kids were drunk, he would get them to take pictures with no clothes on. You didn't see any of this. You saw... Uh, him give the kids some ice cream and they were really happy about the ice cream. You saw him try to give the kids some alcohol. This is where Arnold got a little cagey about it. But the comeuppance for the pedophile was really the denouement of the episode. So I've, I'm pretty sure it was a 30-minute episode. Maybe this is one of the special ones that was an hour. Remember, this is a comedy show. So this is a comedy show where the primary storyline is that a man is being a predator towards little kids. But what I remember more than anything else is that for the first 20 or 30 minutes of this show was a how-to for pedophiles. How to get the kids to trust you. How to get the kids in a situation where they aren't making good decisions. How to get the kids to actually take off. I mean, it was essentially a how-to be an effective pedophile. Open a bicycle shop so that you're around kids all the time. Give the kids things they like so they trust you. Then start to get them inebriated so their inhibitions will drop. Now, the very last minute, the pedophile is arrested, which is totally appropriate. But 
my mind can't get away from the proportion of show that was dedicated to how to be a pedophile versus the punishment. Because once he's arrested, he just disappears from the show. There's no sort of balancing act of what are the downsides to being a pedophile because he's arrested and disappears. They don't talk about him or see him ever again. That's problematic because it would be very easy to come away with the show with the wrong message if you miss the last two, three minutes. So if you would like me to watch a very special episode of one of the shows you enjoyed when you were young, feel free to send it to velocipodcast at gmail.com. If it's on YouTube, send me the link. I promise I will watch it and I will analyze some of the decisions made, not only by the characters, but by the writers and producers of the show, which takes me to my single favorite line in all of television history. And it was Degrassi High School. It's a Canadian show, so you already know it's pretty bad. But, I mean, that's where Drake came from, so it can't be terrible. They have kids in Canada who are on Degrassi Street, which was when they were in elementary school. It's basically the, the little rascals of Canada. They went to middle school, high school. Some of them went to university and then came back to later generations of the show. There's one guy who has done nothing else but worked on Degrassi shows his whole life. But every episode of Degrassi was a very special episode. And this was about doing acid. And so the kid who had clearly done it before brought his friend along and he gave him a piece of paper. He said, what do you do with this? Well, you, you eat it. He goes, man, I don't know if I want to eat a piece of paper. And his friend said, if you're not ready to eat a piece of paper, you're not ready for acid. Now, I have to say, in all of history, never has a statement been so true. If you are not ready to eat a small piece of paper, I absolutely guarantee that you are not ready for acid. So take that to heart. Because nothing could be more factually correct than that statement. Core question. I was recently fired from a company. My old boss just contacted me, asked me work-related questions. Should I respond? This is a really good question, so I don't want to make fun of it too much. The real way to answer this, though, is how is your relationship with your old boss? Because sometimes you get fired, and it's not that your boss fired you, it's his boss did, and so he didn't want to. So maybe you don't want to screw over your old boss, because they were a good person. But... At the same time, if you had a negative relationship, they might just be trying to take advantage of you because they fired you even though you were necessary to the company. So the only thing you need to remember is you are not obligated to do anything. That's number one. You don't work there anymore. They have a problem. That is actually not your problem. If you like your old boss, you want to help him out, respond, tell him what he needs to do. But I honestly would only put a minimal amount of time into it. The second option is you hate your old boss and you give him incorrect or difficult to understand answers that he can't do. And that's kind of screwing them over a little bit because they fired you and they screwed you over a little bit. So that's sort of tit for tat. The one thing I would probably consider more than anything else is charging them for your time. So this would be consultancy. They're asking you for information about work. They want you to help them. Uh, The way this works in business is if you use my time, you have to pay me. And a lot of people don't think about it that way. So it's, should I do a favor? Should I not do a favor? But you're not doing them a favor. You're working for them. So I think what you should do is give them a price for your time. 
So X amount of dollars per hour. So whatever you made at the office, let's say you make $20 an hour. I would say I will answer these questions at a rate of $25 per hour, but at a minimum of one hour. What you're establishing now is, yes, we don't work for you. I don't work for you anymore, but yet my time is valuable. So if you want some of my time, you have to pay for it. And that to me is how business works. That is fair. Now, I would bet more than anything else that if you say, I will answer these questions for money, they will stop asking you. But they can't say you did anything wrong. They can't say you mistreated them or you were unfair. All you said was, my time is valuable. If you want my time, you have to pay for it, which is how business works. So if that boss ever says to someone in your industry, oh, this guy, you know, he doesn't help people out, and the story gets out, you can say, oh, I was more than willing to help the company. They just had to pay me for my time. And then it would become pretty clear that they were trying to take advantage of you. You laid down fair and honest ground rules. They could accept it or they could not. That's up to them. But you gave them the choice and you don't get screwed out of your personal time. Because to me, personal time is actually the most valuable time. Because any time you spend answering their questions is time you are not spending time looking for a new job because you got fired. So that time is now incredibly valuable because what you're talking about is the time you should spend looking for a job because they stopped employing you. So when you look at it that way, I actually think the rate should go up even higher. So whatever it is you were getting paid before, 1.5 times minimum is what you should get paid for doing work for them now. Quora question, why do some intelligent people lose all interest in academia? And while I don't claim to be an intelligent person, I did lose interest in academia. So maybe I can offer some insight as to what bothered me or why I lost interest. Because the first problem was what was promised to me and what actually I was delivered were not the same. So the promises of academia were never kept. So when I was in grade school, I was told that in high school, I would have more freedom of choice to choose my own courses. And that would give me sort of a better sense, more ownership over my education. Now in high school, you have a couple of electives. So you're basically picking between generally binary choices. It's to study French or study Spanish or study this or this. Uh, maybe which branch of science, biology, chemistry, or something like that you want to study. Uh, but if you look at it, you're not really, it's a false choice. You're not really getting a lot of actual choice there. It's you still have to study a language. You still have to study uh, a science, let's say. Now, I don't really have a problem with that, but they made it sound like it was going to be much bigger than it was. Then I was told essentially the exact same thing. The university will be more invigorating. It'll be more thrilling because I will be choosing everything I want to study. I will be with other people who want to study the same thing, have the same passions. When I got to university, I started with English literature, because I really liked reading, but honestly, that was as deep as my passion went. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had this vague sense that I wanted to be a writer of primarily fiction, but I didn't know what to do with that yet. So I got to university, and they told me I had to take a science a science class. If you were taking the ones that just fulfilled a requirement, I think the options were like geography and, and maybe oceanography or something like that. Uh, and it was full. The class was full of people who didn't want to be there. But you had to do it. It was a requirement. And then I had to take several classes like that. 
So already that feeling of, you know, deciding what I'm going to study is diminished. It's not gone, but it was already like, I have to do this. This is what I'm paying for. Because this is the secondary thing. I paid for my own education. And so I felt like, why am I being forced to do something that I don't want to do, that I have no interest in, if I'm paying? Because it's different when you're in school and taxes pay for it, at least in Canada. Uh, Yeah, you don't really get a say over it. You have to study ABC. I did not find the other students particularly engaged in a lot of stuff. I found that in my English degree, a lot of students didn't even read the book we were supposed to write an essay on. They just, you know, read summaries or they watched a movie uh, and they faked their way through it. So they didn't care about reading or literature. They were there because I think they needed a degree to keep their parents happy, stuff like that. There was an astounding number of students who took English literature who never really read the material. I was a fairly avid reader, so reading the material wasn't the problem. My problem was writing essays because essays are formulaic. It's always thesis, point, support, conclusion, and that is not particularly creative. I believe I've told the story on the, on the podcast before about the first time I tried to get creative writing an essay. So I'd written for a year, let's say, essays. You write maybe one or two a week for all your classes. And they all follow the same formula, and it's incredibly boring. And that's maybe the part that most intelligent people get most frustrated with, is university, for the most part, is really boring. Uh, The passionate teachers are rare. They don't really exist. The passionate students, also rare. They don't really exist. And I found that writing essays over and over again was stifling any sense of creativity I had. So I wrote what was called a mimetic essay. And instead of presenting two ideas or or comparing and contrasting them, I wrote a little dialogue between two characters. Each character represented one point of view. Uh, they were having a fireside chat. I wrote it, trying uh, tried to copy the style of maybe like an 1800s vocabulary. So it was all very creative. And I showed it to some friends because I was actually quite proud of it. And they all thought it was really impressive. They all thought that it was interesting. It was fun to read. They got the main idea really quickly. Um, it was engaging. And so I handed that in and I got a C. And I think I got a C because clearly I'd done some work. So I went to see the professor and I asked him what the problem was and what he said to me. And this to me defined university. It wasn't what I was expecting. Now, if getting something you didn't expect is bad, then I had been lied to about what university was. Because I was told, you know, you challenge your teachers and they will respect that. I found that, for the most part, to not be true. You try to be creative and think outside the box and, and you'll be rewarded for that and everyone will admire it. I found that to not be true. Uh, so for the remainder of my time at university, I just wrote the formulaic essays, often with significantly little thought put into them. Uh, not trying to get too creative, just, you know, write what they want to see, right? You know, repeat things maybe they said in class or just write something really standard and dull. And for that, I was rewarded significantly with A's. But I found that by the end of the four years of university, my writing style, in my own opinion, had been diminished. I now, when I sat down to write a creative project, started writing an essay because I, I had been trained to follow these steps. And that is not interesting. It's not fun. And it's not improved me. It's actually made me way worse. I argue strongly that I would have been better served by just having four years to do whatever I want in a library. 
So read whatever I want, study whatever I want, and then write things on it. I bet you would have gotten some crazy, incredible creative works as a result. But the reality is, university is a system. And some people see the system and they exploit it and they do very well. They usually go on to be academics. Other people see the system and they find it oppressive. Uh, and that would have been the camp I went into. And I really should have spent far, far less time in university. And I've come to the conclusion that most arts programs in universities are essentially a waste of time. You would be better served by just exploring those artistic things on your own, creating your own opinions, expressing yourself in your own way, and not following the rules they lay out for you. So academia is good for academics. But most intelligent people actually aren't academics, and that's one of the misnomers. A lot of academics are not intelligent people. They are people who understand and thrive within the system. So the problem is, broadly, we think people who are in academia are smart. That's an equivalency, where I don't think it is. I think people who, who thrive in academics just thrive within that system, whereas a lot of the most creative and intelligent people I've met didn't do as well in school or didn't get much out of it because they would have been better served by doing something else. Certainly, I am very down on university unless you're doing a science degree because I think sciences is something you have to study, you have to be guided through, you need that class time. But whenever you get to an artistic endeavor, I think what you really need is some, something more in the frame of a mentor program where it would be you, maybe two or three other people and one teacher and you explore things together. But then it would still rely on the teacher being a good teacher. So in that instance, if you got a bad teacher now you'd be in the same boat with the same problems. Probably even more so because you're getting more attention from this person who you don't think is a very good teacher. But I assume if that was the system, you could change teachers if it came down to it. What I really found was what I was promised is that university would help me bring out my best to make me more creative. And what it did was the exact opposite. And that is why I think many people are disillusioned with academia. The loss of podcast. The Loss of Podcast. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast.